friend. Thanks for checking out the Crosspoint Church podcast. It's our hope that these messages will encourage you to grow and thrive in your relationship with Christ. You can find more like this at thecrosspoint.com. What an exciting Sunday. We've had five people baptized today. Praise God for that. Hey, if you're in the house and you were baptized, so we've got Timothy, we've got two Ericas, both Ericas and Jerry that were baptized. If you're here, stand up real quick. Jerry, I see you over there. A couple of them, yes. Thank you, awesome. Up here, yes. We talk all about, all the time about taking the next step in your walk with God. And these five today, four in this service, one in the first, did just that. They took their next step, growing in the grace of God and, and stepping out in baptism. So that's awesome. If you're here and you saw that and you're like, I've never been baptized. I, I need to be, I wanna be. There's a room called Next Step right out to your left as you go out there. They can talk with you and, and take you through that journey of baptism and be part of the next one that we do here. So excited about that. We're also excited. We're launching this Wednesday. Wednesday night are 40 days to Easter. And so these are 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday that we're believing to God, we're seeking the Lord, we're asking him for salvation, for more baptisms, for him to do a work in your life. And you can get involved in a few different ways. The first one, we've got our 40-day devotional that Pastor Josiah and Sean wrote. And if you scan this code, it'll be up on there. This is gonna take you right to YouVersion, which is an app. A lot of you have it on your phone. If not, you can download it on your iPhone or Android. And you can go with us together each day on your phone. You'll get a notification. You'll read a verse, a couple verses in the book of Mark. Go through a devotional. And we'll be doing this as a church. You can do this individually. Uh, Jess and I are going to be doing this with our life group. So we're going to be walking through this. I'm with the guys. And she's going to be going through with the girls in our life group. And so each day we'll read this. We'll comment right there. We can pray for one another. And so that may be something that you can do with your life group or some of your friends here. But I encourage you, be part of this 40 days as we look into the book of Mark. Also, uh, if you have a prayer request during this time, be praying for some certain things. Whatever it is, we'd ask that for 40 days you ask the Lord. Keep praying about it. And then finally, coming up in two weeks, we have our Seek Week, which is uh, March 4th, 5th, and 6th. It's a Monday night at 7, Tuesday night at 7, and Wednesday night at 7, where we seek the Lord, we worship, we go to his word, and we pray for the things that we're believing God to do Easter. So be part of that, all right? And so I see a lot of you scanning that, going to you version, downloading that. Be part of that with us. Well, if you have your Bibles, we are in Exodus chapter 20. We're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we are uh, down to the final two messages in this series. It's been good. We've had a lot of fun looking at how the Ten Commandments, uh, how, how we see God in them and how they relate to our lives. And it's not just some antiquated rules from the Old Testament, but they apply to our life. Imagine this with me, just for a second. Imagine if everyone in the world obeyed the Ten Commandments fully. Think about that. What would your life look like? What would the world look like if no one broke any of the Ten Commandments. Think of all the things we wouldn't need. We wouldn't need copyright laws. 
We wouldn't need to lock our houses or our cars. We wouldn't need fraud on our credit cards. You wouldn't get a call from the guy trying to sell you and letting you know that your car warranty is about to expire. You wouldn't have that. We wouldn't need courts or contracts or prisons. We wouldn't need sexual abuse training at work. We wouldn't need church security teams. Life would be different, wouldn't it? My life would be different. I know we see rules and we hear 10 commandments and we think, oh, I just don't like rules. I wanna be free. But I would ask you this, where has our culture of saying yes to everything and removing all the no's, where has that gotten us? I think God was onto something when he gave us these commandments. What we've been seeing is that a no to something is actually a yes to something else. So when God asks us to say no to certain things in our life, it's not just because he's a mean guy up in the sky that wants to control our life. He actually says, I have something for you, something better. And so by saying no, you're saying yes to something. I think of a world where if everyone obeyed the Ten Commandments, that would mean yes to me being able to send my kids to the park, walking by themselves without ever fear of someone taking them. All those things, it's a yes to. And so that's what we've been looking at. What is God saying yes to through the Ten Commandments? Today we're going to be looking at commandment number eight and ten, and we're going to be combining them today, and then Sean is going to finish the series next week on commandment number nine. But let's read in Exodus chapter 20, we'll read verse 15 and 17. Verse 15, you shall not steal. And then verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. John D. Rockefeller, one time, at one time, was the richest man in the entire world. He was the first billionaire, the first U.S. billionaire. And so he was asked once by a reporter, how much money is enough? And you guys might know his reply, it's pretty famous. He replied calmly that just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. The richest guy in the world, first US billionaire, and his response to the question, how much money is, to, is enough, is just a little bit more. Now, before we jump on Rockefeller and shake our heads and saying, oh, what a greedy man, maybe he was just speaking for the rest of us. Maybe he was just being honest enough to actually say that, don't we all feel that way? Don't we? Doesn't Josh Hartman live his life often with this driving sense inside me that I need just a little bit more? Josh, how much hunting stuff does one guy need? Just a little bit more. How many hats does a guy need? Just a little bit more. How many shoes do ladies need? Ladies, just a little bit more, yeah. How many streaming services do we need? How many TVs do we need? And on and on, we could go through it. Maybe I didn't touch on your thing, but you know what it is. You know what it is that just kinda keeps pulling and when you get it, it's never quite enough. It always leaves you with the feeling I need just a little bit more. 
I need just a little bit more. In fact, I think we could say this is probably a good slogan. This could be the title, America, land of just a little bit more. And it's not just an American problem. It's a humanity problem, isn't it? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the most content, perfect place you could ever imagine. They had everything they wanted and more, and yet the enemy got into their ears and said, hey, you're missing out on something. There's something else that you need here. And when they took a bite of that fruit, they detonated a bomb of discontentment and envy into the human race. And we feel that, don't we? We feel the shockwaves of this today. But because God loves us and he loved the Israelites, he's loved his people throughout history, he hasn't just said, okay, you messed it up, you deal with the consequences. He's provided us a road to freedom. And along that road, he's put up some guardrails. And we've been looking at these in the Ten Commandments. He says, here's some places to put up some guardrails in your heart where you are tempted to get off course. And so he's given us that. And so we see that today, first in number eight, thou shalt not steal. Most of us would say, check, all right? In a survey done uh, recently by Barna, they interviewed people and they said, how are you think you're doing with commandment eight? And 86% of people said, I completely 100% obey commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. So on, on, by and large, Americans, humanity thinks we're doing pretty well with eight. Until we start thinking about things like, do you ever watch YouTube while you're on the clock at work? What is that? Do you ever fudge the numbers on your charitable giving at the end of the year? Do you ever go into the grocery store and try that grape before you buy the whole bunch? <laughs> Guilty. You see, when we start digging a little deeper, maybe I'm not as innocent as I think. God says, don't steal. And number eight, he says, don't covet. Now, coveting is probably not a word you use this week, but I think a good way to describe what coveting is is exactly what John Rockefeller said. It's the desire in all of us to have just a little bit more. It's a desire for us when we look at our neighbor and we look around us and we say, I need that. That's my life that I should have and I want it and I'm gonna get it. And that's what coveting does. It pushes us towards that. And so we're stealing, number eight is stealing. It's kind of this external taking of something. Coveting is kind of theft of the heart. It's an internal pull. You may never lay a finger on your neighbor's property, <clears throat> but in your heart you have. In your heart you've already taken it. It's like lust is to adultery and anger is to murder. Coveting is stealing of the heart. Now, let me just say right from the beginning, <clears throat> some of you may be thinking, oh, is this the sermon where I'm told to sell my extra car and downsize my house and give half my money away to the church? No, it's not. God is not upset that you have nice things. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't ha have money, you can't have a boat, you can't have nice clothes. It doesn't say that. What happens where the line is crossed is when noticing people's nice stuff and celebrating nice things becomes comparing your life to other people. 
And that's what coveting is. It's when noticing turns to comparison. It's like that conversation at work when you're sitting around the break room table and you're talking and your coworker starts talking about how the boss has given them an extra project and is thinking about promoting them. And at first you're really happy for them. And then somewhere in your heart, that joy turns to jealousy. That joy says, hey, wait, Why? what about me? And your inner lawyer says those three dangerous words. It's not fair. It's not fair. Why do they get everything? And it kind of, coveting takes us in this. As we see things, we say, well, I wish I had that. I wish I had a, a, a nice deck to look out over some woods. And wouldn't that be nice? And then I wish goes to I deserve. You know what? I really deserve this. I've worked really hard. I'm a good dad. I've done all this. I've worked overtime. I deserve this. And then it goes to, it's not fair that I don't have it. And thus is the vicious cycle of coveting and comparison and leading us down the road. And this is why God says, hey, listen, it's not just a suggestion. God doesn't say in commandment number 10, hey, listen, stop coveting the Ferrari and just be happy with the Honda. You can covet the Honda, but not the Ferrari, all right? Let's just, like, be realistic, okay? Now, that's not what he says. He says you need to cut it out completely. You need to remove coveting. No matter if you're, uh, you know, living in a one-bedroom house, you can still covet. And no, if you're living in a mansion, you can still covet. He says, hey, it's got to go because it's dangerous. It leaves us to a place that is not good for us. Maybe there's some in the room in your retirement age, and you see this a lot where you thought retirement was gonna look different than it was. And you start looking at other people's lives and they're going on trips and you've had to take a part-time job to make, pay the bills. And you're saying, why? This isn't fair. I deserve those things. You see, long before we break commandment eight, thou shall not steal, We've already broken number 10 in our hearts. In fact, if you look at this, almost all, all the commandments, when we break the commandments, it starts with desiring something above God in our hearts. 10 is kind of this encapsulation of all the commandments. It says, hey, it all begins here in your heart. It begins with your motivation. It begins what you put as the primary thing in your life. And so when we covet, and we want something else, and we let ourselves start comparing, comparison, looking at someone else's life and running an inventory list of your life, that is the gasoline on coveting. That's like taking a can of gasoline and putting on a fire. It, be, it lights something inside of us, and it's scary what happens when coveting is fueled by comparison. So let me give you an example. I enjoy camping. I love going out with my boys, getting in nature, sitting around a campfire. It's awesome, and we've spent some great memories. And I, you know what? I love my Walmart special tent, all right? It's great. I love it. We've had lots of memories. My Walmart tent is great until I walk into REI. And then my Walmart tent isn't great. And then the big Agnes Copper Spur backpacking tent that weighs half of what mine does and says on the box, this will make your life better right there. That suddenly what I had doesn't look as good as it did. And 
my heart and my head start having an argument. My head says, bro, you can't afford this. You've got kids that need sneakers at home. And by the way, you, did I, you have a tent that works and this is not gonna make camping any better. My heart says, oh no, I need that tent. I totally need that tent. Yeah, it's a little expensive, but you buy once, cry once, all right? And <laughs> it's such a good deal that I'd actually be losing money if I didn't buy this tent. Now, I'm being a bit facetious, but not really. That internal conversation happens all the time in my heart. And you may be thinking, why in the world, Josh, you're crazy that you'd buy money to buy a tent to sleep in nature where there are bugs and it's hot and there's creepy crawlers. I get camping might not be your thing, but you pick your own poison. You know what your thing is, from shoes to tents to maybe your thing is just you love money in your bank account and you check your stocks every morning is the first thing you do, or you check the number on interest and how much you're making, and for you, your God has become, I've got this amount. And you have this thing where you keep looking around you and your success is built on how much you have. And what I've seen in my own life is that comparison, walking down that road, when I go into REI often, it starts the comparison. And I see this in my life, and I start looking at this stuff, and then I look on, uh, <clears throat> on Instagram, and I say, you know what? None of the people I'm following in an Instagram are using a Walmart tent, all right? So I need this. And comparison is dangerous for a few different, a lot of different reasons. As I was thinking this week, here are just a few practical things that I've seen where comparison takes me. First of all, Comparison is very dangerous because I'm comparing my life to someone who's comparing their life to someone else. Have you ever thought of that? The person you are trying to, the lifestyle you're trying to get, the person you're trying to be like is most likely trying to be like someone else. They're not as happy as you think they are. I was talking to someone in, in between services and they were talking about a time when they had the house of their dreams. And they said, what people didn't see is that my husband had to sell his truck to make the, car, the house payments. We were so stressed out, it almost ruined our marriage. You see, what we're grasping for, we're looking to someone and We've set our goal, but that goal is always moving because they're, they're looking at someone else's life and they're comparing it. Another thing I've seen is that it won't be long before I need something else. The high that I get from buying something, a piece of outdoor equipment, the high I get, it never lasts as long as I think it will. If you don't believe me, go home today and look in your garage Look in your basement, look in your storage unit, and you're gonna find collecting dust is all the things you thought would make you happy. The new computer, the new iPhone, this or that, that clothing. Now all the clothing that you thought made you feel so good is in a bag ready to be donated to Goodwill. That's what happens. And again, God is not saying there's nothing wrong with stuff. There's nothing wrong with it. But when it starts calling the shots, when who you are and your value and your worth and whether you're happy or sad depends on a thing, 
that's a dangerous place to be. Maybe the biggest reason why comparison is so dangerous is that comparison is a killer. It's an assassin, all right? So we, we think comparison, we're like, Josh, hey, where are you living? Like, it's, you know, it's 2024, everyone compares everything. It's social media, we know what everyone's doing. That's just the life we live. We compare it, and comparison and coveting and envy is so normal that we think it's harmless. We think it's like a fuzzy bunny that we just, oh, look, it's so cute, I know, but you know. No, it's an assassin, it's a killer, and here's what it goes after in my life. It goes after my joy, it goes after my contentment, and it goes after my ability to enjoy life right now. When I'm comparison, I'm always thinking, oh, when I get that, when I achieve this level, when I'm in this situation in life, then I'm really going to be happy. And so I spend my whole life looking to some place and something that may never ever happen and I miss out now. Think about that. What is comparison? What has it robbed you of? What has it killed in your life? If we went around the room today, I'm sure we would hear some stories of people who would say, man, comparison, envy, wanting, chasing something I could never get ruined my marriage. It ruined my relationship with a family member. It caused me to lose a job. It caused me to do things I never thought I would doing. It is powerful and it is dangerous and that's why God says, hey, listen, there's not a, it's not a sliding scale here. It's not a compromise of let's meet in the middle. God says it needs to go. Because even a little bit of coveting, even a little bit of comparison and envy is dangerous in our lives. I remember when I was little in our in our household, I've shared this before, but at Christmas time, I had a large family, and my mom and dad at Christmas time would make each of us open a Christmas gift one at a time, all right? And so it took about three or four days to get through opening presents on Christmas morning. And you had to open it, and they wanted us to enjoy the moment. And so I would open up a gift, and it most likely was a G.I. Joe action set. And I remember being like, this is awesome. This is the best day of my life. Mom and dad, you are the best parents ever. Amazing. And I'm playing with my little G.I. Joe character, and it wouldn't take long till I look over, and my brother Jeremy would open up the deluxe G.I. Joe action set with the included helicopter, with the little rope that came down. It would pull up G.I. Joe into the helicopter. And my best day ever would vanish pretty quickly. Suddenly, I didn't feel like my mom and dad were the best parents ever. The gift, the joy of the gift, was robbed by comparison. And what I felt is, hey, it's not fair. Why did he get the helicopter and I didn't? And so what I thought was an awesome gift, that was gone. That was robbed by comparison. And in the same way as adults and young adults, that happens to us all the time, doesn't it? You're having a good day, you got up and read your Bible, things are going well, you open up your phone, and two minutes into scrolling on your phone, and bam, your day is messed up. You went from thinking, God, I'm so blessed, thank you for this life, to why don't I have any of the good stuff? 
You see, it gets us to start living from a deficiency mindset. We start living our whole life from a deficit. And so our lens on everything around us becomes a deficit. Jesus boiled the Ten Commandments down into two in the Gospels. And he said, the two, here it is in a nutshell. He says, love God and love people. It is impossible to love God and love people and live a life of comparison. They can't coexist. Loving God and loving people does not coexist with comparison. And here's why. It is hard for me to love my neighbor when I want their stuff. It's hard for me to love a coworker when I think they got the job I wanted. It's hard for me to love my spouse when I'm looking out and saying, well, why doesn't my spouse do that? Why, don't, why doesn't she act like that? It's hard for me to love my neighbor when I'm comparing. And it's also hard for me to love God when I'm viewing the life from a deficit. When we view life from a deficit mindset, everyone around us owes us. Our neighbors owe us, our friends owe us, our spouse owes us, and we get to a point where we think God owes us. Think about this. There are often days I go out and I go to start my car and it doesn't, doesn't start, and I start throwing a fit saying, God, I'm a pastor. The least you could do is give me a car that starts. All right, I'm doing this for you, God. And I start complaining, and God has to kind of slap me around a little bit and say, did you forget I gave my one and only son to forgive you of sin and free you from sin and give you a life you never would have had without me? And I have to remind myself, God doesn't owe me. I owe God everything, but comparison makes me think that God somehow owes me. That I've done enough good in my life that God owes me good things. And it's dangerous. And it takes us to a dangerous place when everybody owes me. Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 12. <clears throat> Jesus is sharing, uh, he's teaching. He's teaching to a crowd of people, just like today. Jesus would have been up there teaching the scriptures. And as he's teaching, there's a guy that stands up and gets his attention. He says, hey, Jesus, I need you to help me out. My brother owes me money. My brother, he, has, he took all the inheritance money, and he needs to split it with me. So Jesus, could you fix this and make him give me my money? It kind of sounds like something my kids would do. All right, like he took my toy, you need to make it give him back. Well, this guy stands up and he says that, Jesus, make him give me my money. I need that money because that's my ticket to happiness. That's my ticket. And Jesus looks at him and he says this, and you can put this scripture up, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, our life, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus looks at this man and he says, listen, you've got it backwards. It's okay to own stuff, but when your stuff owns you, there's a problem. Jesus says, it's okay to have possessions, but you're looking to these things, you're looking to wealth and money and inheritance, you're looking to that for the good life and that's not where the good life is found. And Jesus corrects him and oftentimes Jesus has had to do this very same thing in my prayer life. 
I'll go to him and I'll pray for something and he has to remind me and he says, Josh, your motivation is a little bit skewed here. You're looking in the wrong way. You want, you want something, but it's, that's not the answer. It's here. It's not in. We are not a sum of what we own. That's not where joy and contentment are found. So where is the good life found? When God says, don't steal, don't covet, what is the yes behind the no? What is God and then Jesus here in Luke, what is he pointing us to? What is the secret? Paul helps us in Philippians chapter four. In Philippians chapter four, verse 11, Paul writes this wonderful scripture that I think will help us as we wrap our mind around this. We've looked at the dangers of, of comparison and, and coveting, but what is God saying yes to? Here's what he says. Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verse 11, he says, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. You see what he said there? He says, I have learned, which means contentment is not the default setting in our lives. Any parent in the room will know that contentment is not a two-year-old's default setting. They don't come out of the womb with the switch on contentment. They come out of the womb with the switch on little monster, all right, and I want more, and give me, give me, give me, give me, and it's all about them, and honestly, not a whole lot changes as we get older. We're just better at disguising it. Paul says, I've had to practice and learn how to be content. It doesn't come naturally. He says, I've learned to be content. Contentment, what does that mean? Well, in the words of, of John Rockefeller, who said just a little bit more, this would be the opposite of that. Instead of needing a little bit more, getting to the place saying, I have all I want. I have all I need. I have what I need. We've said this before, but gratitude is being happy with what you have. Contentment is saying what I have is enough. What I have right now is enough. Not that God won't allow me to get nicer things or a bigger house or a promotion. Man, God, God is good and he wants to give good things. But being able, no matter where you are, from the young adult in a one-bedroom house to the millionaire who has a luxury mansion, being able to say, I'm happy with what I have. And it's not just being happy in our stuff because you can be a non-Christian and be content with what you have. Paul pushes us a bit farther here. We're gonna see that. It's not just being content with what you have. It's being content in Christ. It's understanding that everything you have came from Christ. That when you said yes to Jesus, you became the richest person in the room. When Paul on the Damascus Road, when Jesus stops him and changes his life, that's the day he became rich. That's the day he had everything he ever needed. That's the day all his want and longing for more knowledge and more this, it stopped and he realized everything he was looking for was found in Jesus Christ. That's contentment. And that is found whatever the circumstance. That means the person in the room who has the least amount in their bank account. Now we've run the numbers, but I'm, no, I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> the person in the room that has the least amount can be the most content person in the room. Isn't that freeing? Contentment is an equal opportunist. 
It's not reserved for the elite. It's not reserved for you have to be a certain age. You have to have a certain number of stuff. No, contentment. We need to get this. Some of you have been sold the lie that you will only be content when you get X, Y, Z. You're single now. You'll only be content when you get married. That's not true. Paul says, I've learned that contentment has nothing to do with what I have or what I don't have. It has everything to do with being found in Jesus Christ, the richness of him. And that's so freeing. That changes everything. We learn to be content. Godly contentment, the kind Paul is talking about here, it frees us from the ever-tightening grip of coveting and comparison. Godly contentment pries the fingers of comparison off our neck and frees us. Paul would go on to say that I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can do all of this through him, talking about Jesus. I can do all of this through Jesus who gives me strength. That's the secret. That's the key. Now, some of you have heard this verse preached like, all you gotta, you can ask for the Lamborghini, just make sure you say in Jesus' name. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, when I have Jesus, that's what my eyes are. Like Hebrews, Dave talked about on Wednesday night, that I set my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. I lay aside all the things that are holding me back. For some of us in the room, the things that are holding us back is comparison and envy and wanting something we think is gonna be happening. And, and the scripture says, lay it down for something better. The good life is not found in a thing. It's not found in traveling somewhere. Those things add to our life and they're wonderful. When we get to go on vacations and we see the beautiful places, but if you're relying on going to a beautiful place to feel good about yourself, that's a miserable life because the other 50 weeks of the year are lived here in St. Louis, are going to the same job, waking up to the same spouse, seeing your same kids. If you can't, if contentment is somewhere you've gotta go, you're gonna be miserable. If contentment is something you have to buy, you're gonna be miserable. God says contentment is something that has been given to you freely, Jesus Christ, and it's a beautiful thing. David, King David, in Psalm 23, I think says almost the same things Paul is saying. As I was reading this week, it's like, I really think Psalm 23 is the Old Testament version of Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Here's what David says in Psalm 23, and we've read this, most of you have probably heard this. He starts out, he says, the Lord is my shepherd, and read these three words with me. I lack nothing. Some of you need to say that on Monday morning. And we can put in a name here because we know who our shepherd is. His name is Jesus. Jesus is my shepherd. I lack nothing. When I walk into REI, Jesus is my shepherd. I lack nothing. I lack nothing. <laughs> Jesus is my shepherd. But we have to say this to ourselves. And then he gives us what contentment looks like in pictures. He says, 
you know, where Paul says, I've learned to be content. Here's what David says about contentment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. Doesn't that sound like contentment? That's what, that's what it is. Like, not, not literally. You're not going to wake up in a green pasture tomorrow. But in your soul, when you find your contentment in Christ, it is like you are sitting by a quiet stream. And you're in a pasture and your soul can relax, and that knot you get from wanting, wanting, wanting can start to unwind, and you relax. And it says that he refreshes my soul. Your soul begins to be refreshed. And then verse five says this. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Some of those enemies are greed and envy and coveting and comparison. You see, they don't go away. Tension, the tension of coveting and wanting, it will not go away tomorrow. You're gonna open up an email and it's gonna say, a one day sale only, you have to buy it right now. And you're gonna have to choose to say, man, do I really need it right now? Is that really gonna make me happy? The tension I feel in this is always gonna be there, but it says that in the presence of those things, I can choose to sit at God's table and know that he's provided, he's put out a spread that this world can never touch. What I have in him is something this world could never give me. And then look what it says. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That's the opposite of a deficiency mindset. A deficiency mindset says, wait, my cup's not as full as yours. Wait, why is mine so empty? Why do you? No, it says, my cup overflows. My cup overflows. Even in tough places, my cup overflows. Levi Lusco says it like this. You will never know your cup is overflowing if you've got your eyes on someone else's mug. Isn't that good? You will, know, you, you will never know that your cup is overflowing if you've got your eyes on someone else's mug, someone else's life, someone else's house, someone else's bank account. Oftentimes, when I'm struggling with this, God takes me back to a street and a house that I once lived in on 632 Lincoln Street, a very small duplex. Jess and I got married and we had about two nickels combined. We were paying off college loans and just married and on a small church youth pastor income. And we found this little duplex, and I do mean little. We once had a, uh, a family over to our house, and their boy came in, and he walked through our house, and he says, where's the rest of your house at? <laughs> like, where's the rest of it? It said it had one and a half bathrooms. I think it was about one and a quarter bathroom. The downstairs bathroom, you had to squeeze your way in, and when you sat down on the toilet, your knees hit the wall in front of you. But... God did so many wonderful things in that home. Jess and I got married and that was our first house. A nine month old little baby girl was dropped off by a caseworker and made us parents on that doorstep. We brought our boys home from the hospital there. We laughed and we cried and we prayed. And in that little house, there was such joy and such moments of contentment. And now I've got a bigger house and nicer things and nicer cars. But 
but I've never experienced better joy than I did in that house. I've had equal moments, but I'll tell you now, with bigger stuff and better stuff, it's actually harder to be content than it was back then. And God often has to take me back to 632 Lincoln Street and say, it wasn't about the house anyways. It wasn't about it. It's about the people and it was about his faithfulness and about watching our kids take their first step and being present. That's what it was about. And God often has to remind me of this. And maybe he wants to remind you today. Maybe you've lost your track just a bit. Maybe you've jumped over the guardrail and you say, I'm good. And he wants to bring you back to a life that is truly the good life, the God life, the life that rests securely in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you have gotten off track and if you're honest, you've let envy and coveting and comparison rob some joy, some contentment, some being present in your life. And the great thing about God is he welcomes you back. He says, hey, come on. I promise you the life you're looking for is not found anywhere else but Jesus. Maybe you're looking in today and you're saying, Josh, this sounds so weird. Like, this is so different than everything else I'm hearing out there. Yes, it is. It is completely different. It's, an, it's a totally different way of living, and that's on purpose. It's because we're not looking for the same outcome. We're looking for something different. We're looking to be changed. We're looking to live our life on a different set of rules. And that's what God calls us to, and we're all invited to step in to godly contentment. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. You can check out thecrosspoint.com for more resources like this.